0: 1 Kings 19 says this, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord of hosts, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elijah, the son of Shaphat, Abel Maholeth, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Well, there's a story a long time ago, a rumor that the devil was going out of business. Wouldn't that be nice? But the story was the devil was going out of business and he was having a yard sale, deciding to sell all of his old tricks. And so he had all the traditional kind of darts, the t- traditional kind of things that he would use. He had anger, he had fear, he had deceit, he had jealousy, he had lust. All those kind of normal things that you'd associate with the devil. But then he saw in the corner, Then he saw that people would see in a corner... There was this item that was very well used, kind of misshapen, nobody really knew what it was, and it was the most expensive tool of all. So they asked Satan, what is that tool? Why is it so expensive? The devil answered, it's discouragement. He said, it's the most expensive tool because it's the one I use most on people. When nothing else works, I can enter slowly into their minds and hearts and nobody notices. Once I'm there, I get them discouraged. I can do whatever I want with them. He says this tool is so worn out because I've been using it since the dawn of humanity, and it works with everybody. He says very few people know this tool belongs to me. When they get discouraged and lose hope, they think it's them to blame, other people or the world around them. People hit obstacles in life. They encounter problems. But when they get discouraged, when they lose hope, that's just me doing my job. Why is it that discouragement is so valuable to the devil? Discouragement is so valuable to to the devil because it's so effective. So effective that it's affected some of the greatest saints throughout history. People who have done enormous, crazy things for the kingdom of God. People like Martin Luther, kind of the founder of the Reformation. You have someone like Martin Luther who was bold enough to go and nail the 95 Theses on the doors of the Church of Wittenberg. He was a bold, fearless leader for the Lord, and yet he struggled profoundly with depression and discouragement. One of his most difficult ep- during one of his most difficult episodes, he wrote this to a friend. He said, I spent more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain, and I still tremble. Completely abandoned by Christ, I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. But through the prayers of the saints, God began to have mercy on me and pulled my soul from the infernal below. Charles Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers. He was known for his great eloquence. He had spoke to thousands and thousands of people, but he had an event that kind of, kind of caused him to be discouraged and caused him to be depressed. Uh, he was preaching one day in his parish. There were thousands of people. And some teenagers came in and, and were pulling a prank, and they yelled, fire. And in the process, everybody had headed for the access, and some of the people got trampled. This devastated him. This almost led him to uh, despair and never to preach again. His wife, Susanna, wrote this about him during that episode. He said my, she said, my beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter in her throne, and we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. David Brainerd, a missionary to the Native Americans of New England, wrote this about the early days of his ministry. He said, my heart is sunk. It seems to me I should never have any success among the Indians. My soul was weary of, li- of my life. I longed for death beyond measure. He went on to struggle with depression and discouragement throughout his life. And as we look at church history, we find that many of the greatest leaders in the church struggled with discouragement. People like St. Augustine, people like Soren Kierkegaard, people like John Wesley, even some political leaders like Abraham Lincoln. Discouragement is something that has taken down some of the strongest saints who have ever lived. Discouragement can take a bold, fearless leader for Christ and make them immobilized by fear and regret. Discouragement can transform like nothing else can. And all the while, sometimes, we don't even recognize that discouragement is a tool of the enemy. We see this in the passage that we're looking at today. Consider Elijah. It's remarkable what happens to him. Elijah had so much faith, so much boldness. In chapter 17, we see that he marches right into King Ahab's throne room and calls him out on his sin. Ahab was a bad dude. He was following after the gods of the Sidonians, uh, he was following after Baal. He was ruthless. And yet, Elijah is bold enough to go and call him out and say, God is going to judge you for your idolatry. Has no fear. Then we see in chapter 18, we looked at it last week, he sets up this kind of contest with the prophets of Baal. It's a showdown. Who is the true God? Is Yahweh the true God or is Baal the true God? And he's not afraid. He sets up this altar and has water pouring on it. And he prays to God and fire comes down from heaven. So he's a bold, fearless leader for the Lord. But in the passage we're looking at today, he's terrified. Jezebel, the wicked queen, the wife of Ahab, the architect of Baal worship, so to speak, in Israel, is angry that Elijah has killed her prophets. And so she resolves, Elijah must die. Elijah does what's out of character for him. He flees. He's on the run. He's so terrified that he goes 120 miles away. He goes as far away as he can to hide from Jezebel. He hides wherever he can, wherever he can, to get away from her. And it's remarkable. The same guy who was fearless in the face of Ahab, fearless before the prophets of Baal, the same guy who had raised someone to life by God's power, he prayed for the widow's son, and he rose again to new life, he prayed and the rain stopped, and then he prayed and the rain began again. I mean, he had that much faith, incredible faith, and yet here he is, wishing that he's going to, wishing death upon himself and completely discouraged and depressed. What happened? He bought into discouragement. Discouragement can turn boldness into terror, faith into doubt, hope into hopelessness. So I'd like to look for a few minutes at uh, Elijah's struggle today and look at specifically two lies that he bought into that caused him to be discouraged. The first lie he bought into was this lie that that Satan uh, gave to him, that your work is useless. Sometimes it's hard to get into the characters of scripture, but I think that Elijah's expectations for his ministry were not necessarily in accord with what happened. So again, he set up this showdown with the prophets of Baal, and he clearly and unequivocally demonstrated that Yahweh was the true God, and then after that he killed the prophets of Baal. And I imagine that he thought after this, all right, people are going to turn back to the Lord. The nation is going to renew the covenant. People are going to do away with idol worship. He thought revival was going to break out. God's power had been demonstrated in such a powerful way, and yet now that doesn't happen. Or it doesn't appear that that's happening. Jezebel is on a fury and she wants to destroy him and probably all the other prophets of the true God as well. And so Elijah is running for his life because the change that he hoped would come about doesn't happen. And I imagine he feels like all of the work he's done is for nothing. I mean, you can see as he's talking to God, it's like they've, they've torn down your altars, they've forsaken the covenant... You know, and he's been following God faithfully, showing them clearly that Yahweh is the true God. And it seems like it's useless. Seems like his work was for naught. I think sometimes we get into that trap. Sometimes our expectations don't meet up with reality. God doesn't work in the way we think that he's going to work. And the result is we're discouraged. Maybe we're praying for a loved one who doesn't know the Lord. And we finally get an opportunity to witness to him or her. And we think this is going to be the moment when they break through, when they come to know the Lord. And then we share our faith with them and it seems like they're more opposed to to, to God than they were before. Maybe we're trying to kick an addiction. We're confident we're going to be free of it. And then something happens and we just kind of get led back into it again. We think to ourselves, what's the use of trying? I'm going to go back there again anyways. Maybe we're trying to make good decisions with our money, we're trying to honor God with our finances, and then we get socked with this huge expense, and we're thinking to ourselves, what's the use of trying? seems like no matter how hard I try, I get further behind. Maybe we've been praying for our marriage and trying to make changes we know need to be made, and no matter what happens, it seems to go from bad to worse. And maybe we wonder, what's the use? Maybe we show love to someone and they stab us in the back, they talk bad behind our back seems like the relationship gets further and further apart. When we're discouraged, we often believe that our efforts are useless. Sometimes we think to ourselves, what's the point of trying? John Chrysostom, one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church from the fourth century, uh, he had trouble with his ministry. He had trouble with the fact that he would preach week in and week out, and oftentimes people didn't respond the way that he thought they should respond. He once complained and said this, my work is like that of a man who's trying to clean a piece of ground into which a muddy stream is constantly flowing. That's where discouragement begins. Discouragement often begins with this feeling that what we're doing doesn't matter. That it doesn't matter what you're going to try to do for the Lord, it's not going to turn out well. It's going to end in tragedy. So that's the first lie that Satan tries to get Elijah tries to get us to believe that your work is useless. The second thing he tries to tell us is that we're alone. He tries to tell us you're alone. Look at what Elijah says in verse 10. He says, and I, even I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah believes he's serving all by himself. He has no support, no encouragement. It's well known that abusers try to isolate their victims. And that's exactly what Satan tries to do. He tries to get us to believe that we're all alone, that we're doing it all by ourselves. We have no one to turn to. There was a survey that was done a couple years ago um, from the marketing firm YouGov. In the conclusion of that survey, they said the social media generation is the one that feels the most alone. Their latest report details a surge in feelings of loneliness among millennials, ages 23 to 38. In their latest poll, 30% of millennials reported feeling lonely either always or often, 30% always or often, compared to 20% of their boomer counterparts. And this is especially significant as loneliness tends to trend. uh, As as people get older, they tend to get lonelier. So it's concerning the amount of loneliness in our culture. And in a culture of loneliness, Satan tries to isolate us and make us feel like we're all alone. Maybe it's kind of directly like Elijah. You know, maybe we're the only Christian in our workplace. Maybe we're the only Christian in our family. And Satan wants us to believe that we're all by ourselves. Like these beliefs that you have, these efforts that you're trying to make to, to pursue God. I mean, they're crazy. I mean, you're foolish to be doing this. No, everybody else is having a good time. Everybody else is living their best life. And you're trying to follow this God who's going to lead you to failure. Sometimes Satan tries to get us to believe that. Another way that he tries to isolate us is he tries to get us to believe that we're alone in our struggles. We live in the Facebook, Instagram generation where we can portray the perfect image of ourselves. And we see on social med- media other families, other individuals who are having an incredible time. They have it all put together, they don't have any problems. We know that isn't true. But that's what Satan tries to get us to believe. Other people have it together. They're perfect families without problems. Maybe we think to ourselves, nobody else knows what I'm going through. Nobody knows what it's like to deal with anxiety or depression. Maybe we think to ourselves, nobody sins like I do. Nobody else struggles with pornography like I do. Nobody else has problems with their kids like I do. Nobody else has marriage problems like I do. Satan wants us to believe that we're all by ourselves that everybody else has it all put together, that they're living happy, successful lives, and we're the only ones that struggle. Another variation is Satan tries to get us to believe that nobody else cares. The people around you, they don't care about you. They only care about themselves. So Satan tries to isolate us, and that's what he does with Elijah, and he's incredibly successful in doing that. He tries to get him to believe that his work is useless, and he's all alone. But here's the thing. Those are lies. Those are lies. They're distortions. Psychologists call them cognitive distortions. And what happened is, you know, you'll have an event that happens, and that's an objective fact, and then our minds sometimes take that from there and kind of add details to those things, or, or kind of take it to an extreme. So look at what happens in this passage. One thing happens. Elijah, or uh, Jezebel says that she's going to kill Elijah. That's the only event that happens, only thing that happens. And from there, Elijah catastrophizes that event. Uh, Catastrophizing psychologists define it as this, to imagine the worst possible outcome of of an action or event, to think about a situation or event as being a catastrophe or having a potentially catastrophic outcome. So the only thing that happened is Jezebel says she's gonna kill him. That's it. And he takes that and just kind of runs with him, with that, and his fear gets the best of him, and that just kind of influences all of his life. Look at, for example, at his belief that his work is useless. He had just rebuilt the altar of God at Mount Carmel. He had just demonstrated the power of God, and apparently a number of people had believed in God. If they hadn't believed in God, they wouldn't have killed the prophets of Baal. So a number of people have seen the power of God and believed in God. And we know that God is working behind the scenes and he's going to raise up two new kings that are kind of going to continue this renewal movement and God is going to raise up a prophet. And so it's foolishness for Elijah to believe that his work is useless. I mean, he's demonstrated before all Israel that Yahweh is the true God. He is the God over life and death. He's the God over the elements, the God over the wind and the rain, the God who brings down fire from heaven. So it's foolish to believe that his efforts were useless, but his fear got the best of him. One bad thing happens in his life, and he kind of catastrophizes that, and goes and follows after his fear rather than God. Look, secondly, his belief that he was alone. He was told in uh, chapter 17 by Obadiah that Obadiah had hidden a 100 prophets of the Lord. So Elijah knows there's at least another a 100 prophets other than himself who are alive. Further, God's going to declare to him that there are 7,000 in Israel who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. So this idea where he's just like, oh, I'm all by myself, there's nobody else, there's no other prophets, there's nobody else following the Lord, it's patently false. But he buys into that lie, and he believes falsehood, falsehood rather than the truth. And as a result, he's incredibly discouraged. Think about the struggles of some of the people we talked about, Martin Luther. He's one of the most influential Christians in the last thousand years. We're kind of uh, in that tradition of the Reformation. Any Protestant church is in the tradition of the Reformation. You know, we might not be here in the same sense if he didn't do what he did. Incredible ministry. His belief that he didn't make a difference is patently false. Consider David Brainerd. He was incredibly discouraged at the beginning of his ministry. Wished for death. Now, he Persevered. And after about a year and a half, he started to see a revival among the Indians in New England. Uh, after another year and a half, he started to see a number of people come to know the Lord. About 150 people uh, from that tribe come to know the Lord. Tragically, at the age of 29, he passed away. Now you think about his life, and some people would say he wasted his life. We think about the number of people who knew, came to know the Lord because of his ministry. Not only that, after he died, one of the greatest American theologian, Jonathan Edwards, decided he was going to publish David Brainerd's journals. And after he published those journals, a man by the name of William Carey read his journals. William Carey went on to become the father of modern missions. He was kind of the the inspiration for the modern missionary movement. If it wasn't for him, there would be potentially hundreds or thousands of missionaries who wouldn't that have been sent out throughout the world. And his inspiration was William Carey's journals. And yet, at the beginning of his ministry, there's William Carey thinking to himself, I'm never going to amount to anything. Why did I come here? Why am I suffering all of these hardships? I'm never going to make any progress. Lord, just take me right now. And yet God used him in such an incredible way. For serving Christ, nothing that we do is in vain. Nothing is useless. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So we can't buy into the lie that our efforts are useless. Also, we need to make sure we don't buy into this idea that we're alone. As believers in Christ, God has given, a family, uh, given us a family, the church, to do life with. Despite the image that's portrayed on social media, we all struggle. We all have problems. Nobody has it all together. And when we come together and engage in true community, and I'm not just talking about just like, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. No, when we come together in true community, we find that, We're more alike than different. We find that there's other people who struggle with the same thing. If you're struggling with with something, there's probably someone in this room that's also struggling with that same thing. None of us are alone. None of us are an island. And God has given us the community of faith to do life together with, to encourage one another. C.S. Lewis once put it this way, He said, friendship is born at that moment when one man says to another, what? You two? I thought that no one but myself fill in the blank. That's the heart of community. When we come together as the community of faith and when we encourage each other and experience that deep community, we find we're alike. We all struggle. We all make mistakes. And we can encourage and strengthen one another. So let's not buy into these lies that our work is useless or that we're alone. But we also need to recognize an important reality, and I think this is what God is trying to show Elijah in this passage. The reality is that God often works in ways that we don't expect. So God calls Elijah to go. So he had, uh, he had run to Beersheba, which is about 120 miles away, uh, and he's doing this on foot or on a donkey, so it's going to take him a long period of time. And then once he gets there, God calls him to go to uh, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, the place where a former generation had received the Ten Commandments, had received the covenant of the Lord. And so he goes there, and God speaks to him. And God reveals himself to him in an incredible way. So Elijah is hiding in a cave, and God passes by him. And it says at first there is wind, and the wind... Tore, tears the rocks apart, it says God wasn't in the wind. Then there's an earthquake, shakes the whole foundation of the mountain, it says God wasn't in the mountain. Then it says there was a fire, but God wasn't in the fire. Then there's a sound of a low whisper. In Hebrew it literally is something like the sound of a thin silence. It's like a nothingness. That's where God is in that low whisper. Now, traditionally, when we look at this passage, I think sometimes we look at it as kind of an encouragement to follow after Christ in the spiritual disciplines. That we have to listen to his voice, that we have to be quiet and silent before him if we want to hear from him. Now, that's true. That's something we should do. We should be silent before him. We need to make sure we listen to his voice. But I don't necessarily think that's the point of this passage. I think God's point here might be a little bit deeper. Now, consider a couple of things that pass by Elijah. The wind. Now, what had God just done in Israel? Remember, God had brought a famine on the the land. There was no rain. And it didn't rain for an extended period of time. And then after this showdown with Baal, Elijah prays to the Lord, and they see clouds coming, and then there's this great storm. Look at what it says in chapter 18, verse 45. It says, in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was great rain. So in that moment, God brought wind and rain. So there was a sense in in that context that God was in the wind. God had brought the wind. God had worked through the wind. Then consider the other thing that passed by Elijah, the fire. Again, remember the showdown with Baal the prophets of Baal, and how uh, Elijah creates this altar, puts, has water put on it, and then fire comes down from heaven. There was a sense in which God was in the fire. So God was in the wind, God was in the fire, but then after that, God is silent. And the only voice that Elijah can hear is the voice of Jezebel that says, Elijah must die. And I think what God is trying to communicate to Elijah is Okay, yeah, I was in the wind, I was in the fire, but just because I'm silent doesn't mean I'm not present. God is trying to show him, even though it seems like I'm not present, even though you're on your uh, on, on the run for your life, I'm still there. I'm there in the fire. I'm there in the wind. I'm there in the earthquake. I'm there in the silence. See, it's easy to believe that God is present in the fire. We see it. It's easy to believe that God is present when he brings a storm. It's easy to believe that God is present when he shakes the foundations of the earth. But when we're on the run for our life and nothing seems to make sense, it's hard to believe that God is present. And God tells Elijah, even when you're on the run, even when it seems like I'm silent, I'm there. I'm with you. When we pray for healing and the healing comes, we see God easy to see his presence when we pray for breakthrough and the breakthrough comes it's easy to see the presence of God when we pray for provision and God miraculously provides provision we see God in that provision but when we're struggling for our lives and it seems like there's no way out it's sometimes it's hard to see the presence of God in this passage God is silent but he's working while well, it seems like he's on the run, seems like everything has, bad has happened that could happen, God is preparing his plan. God is planning out the kings that are going to come and destroy the worship of Baal, the kings he's going to place on the throne. God is preparing the prophet that's going to come, Elisha. I mean, it's kind of humorous what God does because Elijah is like, oh, I'm all by myself. It's all about me. My works are are futile. Everything that I've done is coming to nothing. And God's like, okay, I'm going to create a clone of you. I'm not going to call him Elijah. I'm going to call him Elisha. And he's going to carry out your ministry. He's going to continue the work that you started. God is present in the silence. But as human beings, I think sometimes we have trouble with that silence. Human beings throughout history have had trouble with that silence. When Jesus came to the earth... People were looking for him to come with a crown and a scepter, but he came as a baby born in a manger. People were looking for him to subject the nations under his authority, but he came in meekness. It led to a cross. We see on that cross, after he died on the cross, he was put in a cold, dark grave, and all that was present was silence. But God was working. And God raised him up from the grave. Defeating sin and death and offers us salvation. So I think we see in this passage, God gives Elijah the key to defeating discouragement. And the key to defeating discouragement is uh, resting in the fact that God is present even in the silence. That's the key to defeating discouragement. Resting in the fact that God is present even when he's silent. You ever turned on a television show? Maybe it's a show that you've watched a hundred times before, or a movie you've watched before, and you just kind of have it on in the background. You know, and maybe, you know, you're doing some work, maybe you're playing on your phone, and you're not watching every single scene, but you're just kind of listening to what's going on. And you know more or less what's going on, you know the story. Now we can do that today, because you know, the way that movies are made. But back, you know, when movies first came out, there was no sound. They were all silent. And uh, I remember my grandfather liked some of these silent movies. And I had a real hard time watching them. The reason I had a hard time watching them is because you had to just, like, really focus on everything that was happening. I mean, you had to watch the people's emotions. You had to watch every action because there was no sound. And if you didn't watch closely what was happening, you wouldn't see how the story was going and you wouldn't see the conclusion of the story. And I think the same thing is true in our relationship with God. When God works in a miraculous way, like when he works through the fire or the earthquake or the wind, it's easy to see him. We can be doing something else and just know he's working his plan. But when God is silent, we need to focus on him and his character. We need to trust that he's writing a story even though we don't see him. And when we focus on him and his character, we see that he is working. He's working for our good and for his glory. So we don't have to be discouraged because God is always working. Even when it seems like our efforts are futile, even when it seems like we're all alone, God is working. We can rest in the fact that he's working and he's present even in the silence. I'd like to close by reading the words of a missionary to India. Amy Carmichael she said this everywhere the perpetual endeavor of the enemy of souls is discouragement if he can get the soul under the weather he wins it's not really what we go through that matters it's what we go under that breaks us we can bear anything if only we kept we are kept inwardly victorious if god can make his birds to whistle in drenched and stormy darkness if he can make his butterflies able to bear up under the rain What can he not do for the heart to trust in him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you're a God of mercy and love, a God who cares about us. We thank you that you're a God who's always in control. You're in the control when things are going well. You're in control when things seem to not be going well. You're the God of the fire, the storm, the earthquake, but you're also the God of the silence. Lord, I don't imagine to know what everyone here is going through. I know there's many who are going through difficult things. When it seems like your presence is gone, when it seems like you're not working, when it seems like you're silent, Lord, help us to rest in your faithfulness. Help us to rest in your truth. Help us to know that you're with us, that you care about us, that you have a plan, that you're working even when we don't see it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.